You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. And I'm Mark. Mark, my God, what an absolutely crazy day it's been. Why, what have you been up to? Not me, you fool. You've seen what's been happening on the internet. Internet? What's that? It's We're recording this on Thursday evening, and what's been happening all day, Mark? Um... Stop with the funny and just say what's been happening. Um, Are you referring to people talking about missing episodes by the chance <laughs> when you say people who would those people be well i i wasn't sure whether we should be mentioning names because you're friends with quite a few of them well one of them well they're all doing it in public mark so there's no reason yeah. not to uh bring up names well if you're gonna be go on then there's a certain breed of fan who we i think we've talked about fan entitlement before and um it's one of the things that phil gets my morris goat. has made a post about the missing episodes today mark oh is he i must have missed that seriously yeah no i was thinking you were talking about somebody else oh no 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 that's what's kicked all this off no mark unbelievable no <laughs> phil morris oh i can't believe it that's what everybody's talking about because obviously tell, phil, well, tell us all about it then well, Phil obviously doesn't speak in public very frequently on the subject, does he? No, that's true. And He's so, too busy finding missing episodes. Well, you'd hope so. So when he uh, makes a post on the old Facebooks, mm-hmm. it's something not to be ignored. And uh, I'm trying to find it now. Oh, it'd be easier if I type it in this way. I might as well repeat it. Because this is making for amazing listening. Well, it will be making for amazing listening, because <laughs> if anybody hasn't seen this, everybody listening to this podcast, more or less, should be interested in the uh, missing episode saga, shouldn't they? Well, I am. Well, uh, okay, this isn't Phil per se. This is the Television International Enterprises Archives uh, Facebook page. And oh, basically... Oh, that. Yes, sorry. Yes. I have oh, seen you did that. see that? I've seen that, yeah. We didn't realise that Phil typed that. Well, I just thought it was the, the generic tier page. Didn't realise mm. he did all that himself. Well, the thing is, as you were alluding to just now, there are so many rumours flying around. Mm. And not just rumours, there are so many opinions flying around. And I think he's actually made a statement here about some of the rumours and some of the opinions. Mm. Uh, for example, in the post it says... Um, much as people want specific programmes found, wishing them into existence or starting rumours will not magically return them. And so on and things like that. Look, the thing is, Phil's going to do this in his own way and in his own time, and the fact that he's found any episodes at all, insofar as I'm concerned, gives him the perfect right to do it exactly as he wants to do it. If he hadn't gone looking... We wouldn't have anything to show for it. 
Well, it does strike me as a certain type of person who likes to moan about the fact that they haven't delivered anything else more quickly, but they're more than happy to sit on their ass and let someone else go ahead and do it rather than doing it themselves. Yeah. You go looking around Africa, I'll just boil this kettle and hopefully by the time hmm. the tea's made, I'll be able to sit down and watch the smugglers, that sort of thing. Yeah, Matt Barber looked in Waitrose in Exeter, but he couldn't find any in there, so at least he's looking. They probably didn't have a DVD section, because if uh... they did, they'd have had the web of fear. Oh. You see what I'm saying there? I see what you did there. <sighs> the thing of it is, even if Phil hasn't found anything else... He has still returned nine episodes, two almost complete stories that nobody I know ever thought they'd ever get to see. And that is an achievement enough in itself. Uh, I just think the guy's a hero. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's just a nine, he's a hero. If it turns out to be any more than a nine, he's even more of a hero. But if it's no more than just the nine, it doesn't make him any less of a hero for finding those nine in the first place. Possibly it was a mistake on his behalf to come up with the catchphrase, expect the unexpected. Also, I think, obviously with the best of intentions, I don't know if there was any pressure put on him, but he obviously wanted something to come out in time for the anniversary for the fans. And I yeah. think in a way that's put more pressure on him because... There's that expectation there now that possibly wasn't there before. Hey, yeah, because if he'd waited, if everybody had waited until he'd finished the search mm. and then they'd have released the nine episodes and or any more than he might have found, mm. they'd have been able to put a full stop on it. Phil's been searching. Ten years he's spent in Africa and other countries looking for missing Doctor Who and here's what he's found. But the fact is... Because they managed to get those episodes off him early. And I would assume, although I can't say it for a fact, that um, he, he didn't really want to hand anything over mm. until the search was finished. But because they've released those episodes early, it just leaves everybody thinking, he's still looking, mm. he's going to find more. Now, whether he's already found more, or whether he's not already found more, whether he does find more, or whether he doesn't find more, it's still a remarkable achievement after all these years, over yeah. two decades, to have two almost entirely whole stories back in the archives. And there's so many rumours doing the rounds, and I think at the end of the day, he will bring back these episodes, if he does find any more, in his own time, and fair play to him. You know, he's invested a substantial amount of his own money into this search. And a substantial amount of his own life. Exactly. I mean, he's away from his family for months on end. And what people don't seem to perhaps appreciate is that by going into a foreign country and asking them for something, you know, if you just do that, they are not going to necessarily be inclined to give you that something. Yeah. In fact, they're probably very much not going to be inclined. But by providing a service, he's been able to ask them for something and presumably that's part and parcel of how he came to get the episodes in the first place but the thing is if you say i'm going to provide you a service and in return for that service is there any chance i can look and see if you've got anything that i'd like yeah he has an obligation that's to provide it. that service 
So, even if he does find anything else, you know, it is beholden upon him mm. to provide that service before he turns around and starts making money off the episodes they've given to him. So, you know, if it takes him another two years to finish all the work, all the jobs that he's promised to these places in Africa, and in two years' time we find out he did find other stuff, but he lived up to his obligations first, then I think that's fair enough, because it's not just Phil, but it's these, it's these archives themselves in mm -hmm. Africa that we also have to thank, because they may not have kept these episodes deliberately, but by the same token, they didn't let, have to let him have them either. No, no, that's true. So we should be grateful not just to him, but to them as well. And we should just be grateful that we've got them at all, let alone, you know, demanding them here and now. I mean, we're obviously obsessed with Doctor Who and I'm sure... Speak for yourself, Mark. <laughs> I got a bit of a West Wing fetish myself. Well, I've heard that. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, obviously there's, there's other cult TV shows that might be out there somewhere. Um, but he's obviously doing his bit for countries like, you know, um, Nigeria that he went to um, to try and preserve their archives as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not just saving programs for us. He's, he's doing a, a real service of these countries as well. Now, shall we move on? I think we should. Yes, because we've got a lot to talk about tonight. I'm going to save the emails to the end. But I'm going to do Nox Box. Wow, I didn't solo. I didn't make you sing along, Mark. Because It's I probably knew, for the best. I knew you'd be shy about it. Well, I didn't want to lose our last listener with, with my rendition of that. <laughs> we have a bonus, a bonus uh, story in Nox Box tonight. All right. Mm. I'm teasing you with that. And also, Grant Nock, uh, Cult of Morbius on Twitter, our chap on the ground who's reliving the Stephen Moffat era so that we don't have to, he has watched A Good Man Goes to War and Let's Kill Hitler this week. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know whether to tell you what he thought of them now or whether to save that for the end of the episode as well. Well, you piqued my interest now, so I, I want to know. And I've also done the theme, haven't I? So I really have well, to. Well, exactly, yeah. Okay, here's what Grant I mean, I know you're going to tell me anyway. Yeah, but, but I, I was going to save it for an hour. Oh, no, but I've got entitlement issues. I, I want to know now. I'm not prepared to wait. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I'm not sure you know how this podcast works, but uh, generally speaking, it's me who does the funnies. Oh, uh, okay. By which I, I mean... Lee. No. No, you and Lee are always doing funnies. It's just that they don't actually <laughs> tend to be funny. Oh, but, okay. So that was by way of a backhanded compliment, Mark. Oh, thanks. On the subject of A Good Man Goes to War, here's what Grant Nock had to say. The first time I watched this, I spent most of it rolling my eyes, but I really, really enjoyed it this time. A certain swagger to this episode, and once again, Matt Smith blows everyone out of the water. However... On the subject of Let's Kill Hitler, he says, Oh dear, we were doing so well. This is where I had a real problem before, and I still do. Too much going on, very haphazard. The story equivalent of an annoying child screaming, Look at me, look at me, look at what I can do. Mm. 
It's a bit so of a favourite of yours, isn't it, Jay? Mm, oh, I love Let's Kill Hitler. And I can't, I can't disagree with him about the look at me, look at me, look at what I can do. But having said that, I just really enjoy it. It's probably worth it for the gay gypsy bar mitzvah line, isn't it, really? Maybe, maybe. Anyway, for the very first time, Grant watched Kinder this week, so I asked him to give us his thoughts on that too. I remember speaking to him on Twitter and he said that he hadn't seen that one before, which I was quite shocked. Well, he says, just watched this for the first time, really enjoyed it. A very, very... (laughs) <laughs> a very, very good Doctor Who story. Easily Janet Fielding's best performance and one of the best stories of the Davison era, but that's not saying a lot, is it? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, Grant also said congratulations on reaching 100. Aww. Aww. Um, and that was Knox Box. So I'll sing you back out again. You ready? Go on, then. Box Knox. Wow. Uh, that's going right, to be my new ringtone. Is it? Yeah. If only you'd sung along, you could have made it so much more tuneful. (laughs) Right, I'm going to save the rest of the emails for the end of the episode, and so we ought to get along to tonight's subject. Which is? Well, before we do, I'm just going to mention one thing. Um, There's a podcast called 42 to Doomsday, and where does it come from, Mark? From the great land of Australia. And it's hosted by Rob and Mark. And a couple of weeks ago, well, probably about a month ago, they did an episode with a guest on it. And then they said to me, we'd like to do another episode with a guest on it, and we'd like you to be the guest. So, what do you think happened this week, Mark? Um, They got Chris Burgess on as a guest? Not quite. They got Warren Fry on as a guest? Not quite. Stephen Chapansky? Not quite him either. Josh Zyman? They had me on as a guest. You know damn well they did. You're just wasting time because you don't want to get to tonight's subject, do you? Well, we'll see. Anyway, the latest edition of the 42 to Doomsday podcast I was on, we talked about missing episodes. We talked about... Oh, we talked about the the three modern doctors and Mm. kind of what were their good bits and which were the best and... You know, we talked about the various different motifs that go with each of those doctors and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And we talked about Christopher H. Bidmead, and we talked oh about... I know. And <laughs> we talked about oh, all sorts of various different things. And actually, we had a really good conversation. So mainly, because, hearing it. mainly because neither of those two got a word in edgeways. I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so people should check out Doctor Who, 42 to Doomsday. The I take it they're on iTunes. They're on iTunes and all sorts of places. For You can find them on Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's always my recommendation. Or Twitter. Sounds like the way forward. It, mm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll try and understand that sentence. And then when I do at the end of the episode, I'll give you a response to it. Well, if um, you go to their Facebook page, then you can see all the links to their various blogs and download places and stuff yes indeed you can if you're on facebook uh this conversation's going nowhere <laughs> um the subject of tonight's episode which is <laughs> perhaps uh slightly it, fortuitous given that lee and uh simon are both missing this apt. week 
Very appropriate indeed. Yeah. Um, what is the subject? It's Dr. Light stroke companion light episodes. Actually, thinking about it, with Lee and Simon away, the companion light episodes would be the most appropriate, wouldn't they? Well, I don't know. I was thinking of uh, Lee as the, the doctor of the group. Do you really? He's quite eccentric. <laughs> right, going back to the 1960s, mm. I mean, the main thing we're going to talk about is the episodes from the current series, yeah. the modern series, because those are the ones that are deliberately Dr. Light mm-hmm. by choice. Whereas back in the 1960s, of course, one of the things that happened quite frequently in Doctor Who, because it was recorded basically all year round, with a short break uh, in the summer. a very tight but... schedule as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's not like I mean, they were filming weeks ahead of transmission. Oh, Lord, no. Sometimes just days ahead of transmission yeah. by the time they got to the end of the decade. Mm-hmm. But the point was, because they were filming all year round, they essentially had to schedule holidays for all the regular cast members uh, during the course of the stories. So you would end up... Well, you'd end up in this strange situation whereby every few weeks each one of the regulars would have either a week or occasionally, if they were lucky, a fortnight off mm-hmm. where they'd skip an episode or skip a couple of episodes. And I suppose what we're going to talk about in relation to these is were they successful at hiding it? And when they didn't even bother to hide it, were they successful at making it a part of the story? Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't need to go too deeply into this. And I think in the case of the episodes that are still missing... Hello, Phil. Uh, in the case of the episodes that are still missing, it's difficult to tell quite how successful it was because all you really have is the voices. Mm, yeah. Whereas in, uh, things like The Reign of Terror, mm-hmm. where um, William Russell has a week off, and when William Russell has a week off, did he have one in the Aztecs too, I seem to think? Or was that um, Carol Ann Ford? I can't remember now. It's been a while since I've seen that. Yeah. When William Russell being the action man yeah. of the series, has a week off. They tend to do a bit of film for him mm-hmm. and then uh, incorporate it into the episode from the film feed. Yeah. Which, to the modern eyes, makes it very obvious it's quite that jarring, he's having a week it, off. Move from video to film. But back in the day, I don't suppose most people would really notice the difference. And it... I doubt people could tell he was actually having a week off. No, no, quite. And then some of the other occasions, you've got William Hartnell in... Well, we'll come to the 10th planet in a minute. But William Hartnell in The Time Meddler. Yeah, he gets locked up, doesn't he, in the uh, prison cell. And he pre-records his lines, Mm -hmm. and so you just have his voice. That was a fun way of doing it. Yeah. And I think it fitted in with the story, so it was not like you're... It wasn't like a jarring thing to have him missing from the story. Well, some of the writers... I mean, I think mostly because I guess the writers would perhaps be used to working around things like that, even if they weren't necessarily working around that in other programs mm-hmm. but i mean the soaps do it all the time obviously yeah. and they still do it these days back then i guess if you're making television that is essentially 
a live program, even mm. if you're pre-recording it, but you're pre-recording it as live in yeah. the studio with, you know, multi-camera setup and all the various sets dotted around the studio and the camera's desperately dashing from one set to another to make mm. sure somebody's there to film the next scene as it starts and this one finishes. I suppose writers in those days were kind of just used to having to incorporate... They had to plan it out, didn't they? Yeah. In the same way as with that live setup, you have to plan your scenes mm. so that, you know, scene three doesn't start with the same actor who's just been at the end of scene two. Yeah. So, I think where, the, where, it, where it does work when the sort of regular cast have their holidays, I think it, it can add like an extra element of danger or excitement to the story because you think oh my god they've got captured by whoever or you know they've suffered some sort of mm. calamity and it just sort of ups the stakes a bit and also i suppose in another way if you're missing somebody for a week and there are occasions where you're actually missing a person altogether for mm. a week and um the keys of mariners is a great example yeah. of that William Hartnell has a fortnight off mm -hmm. and they actually dispatch him to another part of the planet yeah. for a fortnight and for two weeks. And we forget this when we're watching it on DVD or VHS or whatever because we'll mm. sit down and watch all six episodes on the trot. And so, you know, it's only two and a half hours from the TARDIS landing to the TARDIS leaving again. But actually, if you're watching it as it goes out mm -hmm. back in 1964, yeah. if the Doctor's missing for two weeks... You are following the adventures of the others. Yeah. But always in the back of your mind must be that nagging thought, mm. I hope the Doctor's okay. Yeah. And if you go back to literature, it's similar to Lord of the Rings, the way that the, the story is structured. It will sort of split off into various strands and you'll be following one part of the story. And then at the end of a chapter, it will switch over to another strand of the story. So you're then left thinking, well, what's happening in this part of the story? So it does. It just gives it an extra layer to the storytelling. I think. Are you suggesting that the Keys of Marinus is like Doctor Who's version of the Lord of the Rings? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a similar kind of a story, even if it's not similarly told. Mm, mm. I think I prefer Keys of Marinus, though. I have to be completely honest. Hey, and I suppose the other big one, the elephant in the 1960s room, is Mission to the Unknown. Is it not? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's unique in its own way, isn't it? And we've spoken about why. Mm. I mean, we've spoken about Mission to the Unknown before. Because Planet of the Giant... Well, the way I understand it, I'm mm. not entirely 100% certain that this is the actual reason. But the way I understand it is because Planet of Giants had two of its episodes edited together into one, mm -hmm. that meant that the contracted cast... yeah had recorded one more episode than had been broadcast, which, although all but one of those cast members had left by the time you got to the end of season two, mm. which is where Mission to the Unknown was made, even yeah. if it went out at the start of season three, by the end of season two, you had, in effect, a situation whereby the cast were all finishing a week earlier yeah. than the episodes were going to be broadcasting on the television, so Verity Lambert, and whether she absolutely had to do this or not, but in order to square the circle that had mm -hmm. been created when Planet of Giants was edited down, 
maybe she did it, uh, you know, just in case kind of thing. Yeah. Because if it had transpired that she had needed to do it and she hadn't done it, maybe she'd have been in trouble. So maybe she just did it to offset any trouble that might arise. It's an incredibly brave thing to do. Can you imagine that in the modern series now? Just well, I didn't an get to what she out. actually did there, Mark. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> she made an episode with no regular cast exactly. in it whatsoever. Yeah. Go on, sorry, you were saying. I was going to say, I mean, can you imagine that now in the modern era, Stephen Moffat putting out well, an episode with none of the... we're about to talk about that, aren't we? <laughs> kind of. Mm, kind of. Well, here's the thing. Back in the 1960s, I suppose, yes, mm. it was... I guess it was brave. Yeah. I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure anybody would have thought of it as brave so much as just oh I think we kind of need to do this guys what should we do instead? And I think that by putting the Daleks in it mm. you're That's a kind of fire winner, isn't it? Yeah, you're kind of mitigating against the disappointment yeah. of not seeing the regulars. I mean we because... can only hear the audio now but having listened to it I think it's it's a really suspenseful exciting episode. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And if you've ever seen the animation, which is obviously all over YouTube and everywhere, you know, the unofficial one that was done, mm. uh, which is because there's no telesnaps. So the only recon I've seen... I'm of waiting it, for the, uh, the the real one to come out on DVD. <laughs> the only recon I've seen of it, I've not seen the latest recon of it, but mm. I saw an early recon of it and it wasn't terribly successful. But the animation captures it really nicely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's a decent story, a decent episode. I suppose what it really is, in a way, is... It's a prelude, isn't it, to... Yeah, no, I was going to say more than that. It's, a well, some people say, oh, well, it's almost like a sort of pilot episode of a series that never came about. Yeah. Well, I suppose it is a little bit like a pilot episode of a series that never came about, mm. except the series that never came about is the Daleks' master plan. So really, it's not. It's not like a pilot episode. Mm. What it feels more like to me is an episode from another series altogether in the Doctor Who slot that week yeah. that just happens to have the same monster that the Doctor's always fighting. I mean, it is a chance for Terry Nation to to have a go at writing a, a Dalek story without any of the sort of Doctor Who cast in it because he was very keen to sell that to the American market, wasn't he? A Dalek yeah. series. I wonder if there's any copies of Mission to the Unknown floating about California then. Yeah, maybe. But I think the point was, because Terry Nation obviously had come to Doctor Who from um, Hancock. He wrote for Tony Hancock, Hancock, didn't he? Yeah. Hmm. And I'm not sure, but I'm pretty certain that prior to um, getting sacked from Hancock's Half Hour, which mm. is what happened, isn't it? And taking the job on Doctor Who. I don't think he'd ever written straight drama. Mm. And I think it was one of those instances of somebody finding their feet. Yeah. As soon as Terry Nation wrote The Daleks, he perhaps realised that kind of adventure, fantasy, serial television is, you know, where his heart really lay. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he went off and did a load of ITC stuff. Yeah. Almost immediately afterwards. Mm -hmm. And Mission to the Unknown feels to me a little bit like Terry Nation bringing his ITC head to the Doctor Who playpen. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Hmm. It's not, it's not the Avengers, mm. uh, but it's, 
But it's not wholly unlike a science fiction version of a Patrick McGowan mm-hmm. series or something like that, perhaps. Yeah. And you could you could easily imagine Patrick McGowan in the main part, yeah. I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So kind of mission to so is it successful in I think it is. managing to carry Doctor Who for a week without the doctor and all the others yeah I think so and, and of course unique as well because on many other occasions in the past like we've just alluded to mm. you'd have the doctor missing or the companion missing yeah but you'd never have all of them missing at the same time so it is well, it's it's a little bit like a um oh what's the expression for something that's completely and utterly different? It, it it's completely and utterly different <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It uh, sticks yeah. it, today we look back on it and we see it as something utterly, utterly unique in old Doctor Who. I'm just thinking if you were six or seven watching that and then the following week you had it was um, the Myth Makers, wasn't it? Yeah. You'd be absolutely itching to know what was going on with that other story. Well, that's kind of the point. Mm. As people say that now. People say, oh, if you were watching back then, you'd want to know what happened next. Mm-hmm. And you'd have been sorely peed off at the fact that you found yourself in you know, ancient Greece, Troy, the following week. But remember... For a sort of seven-year-old, a week is a long time. Yeah. And you've kind of, you've had Daleks, and it's great, but I don't think it's entirely obvious that it's the start of a story mm. until you know that there is a story that comes afterwards. Yeah. That it was the start of. It's pretty much self-contained. It's it's not, about... It must be nice, though, if you sort of, if you then watch the first episode of Dalek's Master Plan, you think, ah, right, okay, and it kind of clicks. Uh, exactly, that's what I was about to say. Mm-hmm. It's almost a self-contained episode. It's about two guys in a spaceship mm-hmm. who are tracking the Daleks, and unsuccessfully, and then they get killed. And that feels like it's it. It feels yeah. like a mini Dalek adventure, all by itself, in the middle of nowhere. And then, funnily enough, I think The Myth Makers is one of the best things that could have happened. Because I, I was going to say all kids love, you know, the story of Troy. Okay, not all kids, but you know <laughs> what I mean. It's a popular story, yeah, and it's one that a lot of people kind of know, and it's also one that builds to a very um, well remembered, yeah, sort of. You know uh, how it's going to pan out. You know how it's going to end. Although so they play f- with it, don't they, during the, the well, way exactly. it sort of builds up, which is quite. But the point is, you're kind of sitting there in Troy the week after the Daleks, and you've had the Daleks, and that was mm-hmm. great, brilliant yeah. Daleks. And then the following week, oh, great, brilliant, Troy, Siege of Troy, Ro- you know, ancient Greeks mm-hmm. fighting ancient Trojans, swords and shields and all this kind of stuff. And actually, that's great fun, and you know where it's going. Yeah. So you're going to have fun getting there. So by the time you get to the end of those four weeks, you're going to have forgot. You're going to have forgot that five weeks ago you saw some Daleks and you're not really quite sure what that story was all about. Also, for a modern audience, you tend to forget that obviously you didn't have iPlayer so you couldn't go back and watch you know, the episode from five mm. weeks ago again and again and again as many times as you wanted. Quite. So by the time you get to the end of The Myth Makers, mm. you've almost forgotten about Mission to the Unknown. You remember there was a Dalek thing. Yeah. And then the following week, as you say, you turn it on and there's the Daleks, 
and it suddenly clicks yeah. that it's the same story. So brilliant. Mm. Right. I think we should fast forward 40 years. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> i tell you well, what, shall we have a quick there, email? There is a, there is a notable case, unless I'm mistaken, in the in the 10th planet. where uh, This is more to do with William Hartnell being ill rather than being on holiday. But Oh, yeah. I did say we were going to mention that before we left, didn't mm. I? And we didn't. So, yes, go on. Well, I'm not sure it's handled quite so well. Uh, understandably, it's not through any lack of the, the writer as such. It's just more a case of this happened and they had to kind of work around it. So instead of some kind of dramatic thing happening, the Doctor just feels a bit peaky and they lie him down in a bed, filmed from the back. Um, they didn't They didn't really have a huge amount of choice, no, though, did they? No, because it was kind that, of thrust upon them, wasn't it? It it, it happened yeah. as you saw it, mm-hmm. basically. You know, William Hartnell was ill and... A week before his final episode, which is the most ironic thing of all. Can you imagine if he wasn't well enough to make it back for the final episode? What would they have done? Well, and you know what's even more ironic? Mm. Is that because he had the week off, it probably helped him recharge to make sure that he made a good job of the last episode. Yeah. And then, of course, episode three is the last William Hartnell episode we have. And episode four is the one we can't see. Yeah. Which is... Well, it's just irony upon irony mm. all over the place with that mm. story. And you're right, it wasn't very successful. But I like to think that that was responsible for when Jamie, three years later, when Fraser Hines was ill, mm. then making sure they didn't make the same mistake again. Yeah. Even though the writers and the directors and the producers of the programme were entirely different people who wouldn't have even been aware of what happened mm. with William Hartnell. Three quarters of the way, two yeah. thirds of the way through. So, I suppose if you're looking to take a positive from it, it does give um, Polly and but, particularly Ben a bit more to do in the story because they're taking up the lines that were meant for William Hartnell. Yes, but if you want to look at it in a more negative light, there's Ben <laughs> saying lots of things the Doctor would have said, and Ben never would have. <laughs> it's utterly insane. Yeah, yeah. They try their best to work around it, don't they? That would be a bit like. Um, three quarters of the way through the Sea Devils, you know, John Pertwee taking a week off and Joe Grant walking around with the sonic screwdriver reversing the polarity of everything's neutron flows. I would have been happy with that. I'd have liked to see that, actually. Yeah. Joe Grant with the sonic screwdriver. I'd like to see a reverse of polarity. Although, to be fair, thanks to a certain magazine, we did pretty much see that. (laughs) Um, Sean M. Vale says, just wanted to say happy birthday, stroke anniversary, guys. I've been with you. I've been with you since the very beginning, though I don't know how I found you. In fact, that sounds a bit like something out of a love song, doesn't it? (laughs) You are my favourite Doctor Who podcast, and I hope you keep going for many years to come. Felicitations. Oh, that's very kind. Yeah. We have the best listeners. Of course we do. Of course we do. But then he carried on with the email and went on to say something not very um, <laughs> appreciative of Carnival of Monsters. So I think we'll just skip well, right past that since I love that story. Yeah, I mean, even as a Pertwee sceptic, it is a pretty decent story. I think uh, the problem he was having with it wasn't necessarily to do with the story so mm. much as its realisation on screen. 
because Carnival of Monsters is a pretty cheap looking one. Mm, the costuming is not mm. the best. The grey people. And it was directed by Barry Letts as well. And Barry Letts is one of those directors who is a bit hit and miss, if you ask me. Mm. I mean, he did he did The Enemy of the World and he did The Android Invasion, which are the two sort of bookends to his Doctor Who directorial yeah. career. And they both have great bits, mm-hmm. but and particularly The Android Invasion. They both also have bits not quite so great. Yeah. And uh, I think Carnival of Monsters, insofar as the actors are concerned, was a good day for Barry Letts. Mm-hmm. But insofar as pretty Production much everything values, else, yeah. yeah. Mm. Some pretty poor CSO. And so, but then again, there's that first episode cliffhanger where the hand comes down and picks up the TARDIS. Yeah. Which doesn't look remotely realistic, but it's still a great cliffhanger. Oh, it's still amazing. Uh, they they showed that in the Five Faces of Doctor Who, didn't they? Hmm. So I would have been, what, seven or eight at the time, something like that. So, um, yeah, that was. I seem to remember that being pretty exciting. Did you know this story prior to seeing it? Um, I think I was aware of it because my parents had given me... I don't know if it... No, that would have been after. I was going to say my parents had given me the key to time, but I think that was, that was after. Have uh, you not read the Target book? I don't think I had. I read the Target book. That was one of those Target books where I read it, mm. and I don't think you can get it from the book. Some mm. of the stories are all about the actors and the performances. I seem I to just... remember Blue Peter making a big deal about um, promoting the fact that this was going to be a big thing, and they'd shown a few clips, if I remember rightly. So I think oh, that got me interested. The Five Faces, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I'm saying is I don't think the Target book can really prepare you for what mm. the you know the actors are going to bring to it and it was one of those target books i could never live with mm. it just seemed really dull but then when the actors bring it to life they really do bring it to life and you get a bit of ian martyr so oh yeah that's no bad thing no even if he's not playing harry no but he's just as good yeah right fast forward to 2006 and what mm-hmm. happens Ah, wasn't it a, it was a pretty poorly received episode, wasn't it? Mark, you're jumping way ahead, because I was speaking rhetorically. I was about to answer my own question there. <laughs> Go on, then. Fast forward to 2006, and what happens? The nine-month schedule that they had the previous year recorded 13 episodes in, now, all of a sudden, they've got a Christmas special, mm. so they have to squeeze 14 episodes into the same nine-month period. And so what happens? Now you can answer, Mark. They do a bit of double banking, don't they? Double banking. Okay, the big difference here is, back in the 1960s, if an actor was going to be missing because they were on holiday, you still had the other actors to play with, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily not the case here, but it wasn't how they started. But what you did was you had them missing for only a portion of a story. Yeah. Just for an episode, Mm -hmm. possibly two episodes. Now, of course, in the modern day, when most stories only last for an episode, although there is a case of the other thing, which we'll come to in a minute, Mm -hmm. as most of the stories only last for a single episode, if you're going to have somebody missing, they're going to be missing for the entire story. Yeah. So what do you do? 
And, well, we've got four... No, we've got five Doctor Light stories Mm -hmm. and actually three Companion Light stories because after the first two, they mixed it up. Mm -hmm. So, to my money, I think the companion the uh, doctor light stories rather mm-hmm. i think they've chosen some really interesting avenues to explore yeah and i think they by and large have managed it very successfully because that we've got five stories here and i'm not going to spoil it for anybody if i say we're talking love and monsters blink midnight the lodger and closing time mm-hmm. essentially for the doctor lights and in my eyes well Perhaps not classics, but they are all great episodes. Maybe the idea of having to write something without the Doctor in it, or at least without very much of the Doctor in it, forces the writer to up their game. Mm. Not just in terms of the script, but also in terms of the concept and the ideas. Do you think? Well, I think, um, obviously, Love and Monsters in the chronology is the, the first one that comes up. Uh, yeah. I have to admit, when I watched it first time round, I was pretty nonplussed. Um, oh. But having said that, with subsequent viewings, I love it. I think it's a really standout story. There, Everyone makes the, the big issue about the absorbal often. I know, I know. Yeah, but that But aside, in terms of the concept for what the story is... I think it's brilliant. I think it's The really superb. interesting thing about it is... Russell T. Davis obviously sits down with, you know, a blank piece of paper, whatever, mm. or a blank screen on his laptop. But he sits down and he thinks to himself, right, got to write Doctor Who, don't have the Doctor, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of different directions this can go. You could, like with Mission to the Unknown, write a Dalek story that just mm-hmm. doesn't have the Doctor in it. Yeah. Because I don't think... Even in the modern day and age, I don't think people would necessarily... They'd notice, but they wouldn't necessarily mind the Doctor not being in a story if something that heavily associated with the series is there instead. Mm -hmm. So it still feels like Doctor Who. Yeah. But what Russell T. Davis does instead is does something that feels totally unlike Doctor Who, but he writes the Doctor so much into the core and into the heart of the story that actually, even though it doesn't feel like you're watching Doctor Who at all, or at least not until the last 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. when you get the absorber off turning up and all the running around, but he writes something that feels not at all like Doctor Who, and yet bleeds Doctor Who from every line of dialogue. I was going to say, even though David Tennant's not on screen for for very long at all, because of particularly the way it's pitched you've got these for a better term fans who are obsessed about him and you know, every other word is about the doctor so even though he's not there he feels like he is because you're constantly reminded of him well you know what you know what's happened don't you mm-hmm. you know <clears throat> oh and this is particularly pertinent for us because at the time these episodes were on what did we used to do afterwards we would go to the pub and then talk about it Exactly. And what Russell T. Davis has done with Love and Monsters is he's written that conversation. Mm-hmm. And that is... Uh, uh, brave's not the word. Um, I don't know. <laughs> is imaginative the word? That is a huge leap of faith to take with your audience. 
it's asking a lot. Bear in mind, this is only the second series in as well. So, I mean, they've mm. got a lot of goodwill from the first series, which I think went down pretty well on the whole. Um, so it's quite adventurous in many ways for him to yeah. to do that in this only the second series. Good word, adventurous. That's yeah. what I was probably looking for. Yeah. It is. It is quite an astonishing turn of events. Especially, you know, as I was saying a couple of weeks ago, to have school reunion mm. in that series as well, which... I thought was even an even more unusual decision to do a story about nostalgia for mm. the series that early in the series run, and then to have Love and Monsters at the other end of the series. There were almost like two bookends. Yeah. About about being a Doctor Who fan at either ends of series two. Very strange, but but oddly enough, two of the most successful episodes in that series. Mm. Yeah. And then the next year, you get Blink, which is desperation. <laughs> it wasn't very good, was it? it well, no. Desperation <laughs> in terms of what it was about. And, yeah, quite. Well, because what happened was Stephen Moffat was supposed to be writing the two-part Dalek story. Mm -hmm. And he just couldn't find the time. Yeah. So he, he said to Russell T. Davis, I'm going to have to let you down but I will be able to write one episode. So Stephen Moffat's gone from a two-parter to a single episode. Yeah. And by way of sort of ameliorating the... Uh, he takes you know, one for the team. He does. He says, okay, I'll write a one-episode story, but if you like, I'll write the Dr. Light story. Mm. And Ross T. Davis says, okay, yeah, thanks very much. You can do that. <laughs> no problem. Cheers. And so... Well, he knows it's in safe hands, doesn't he? Well, I guess so. I think even then, they still were never quite sure. Hmm. I, uh, you know, at that point, Stephen Moffat had written The Empty Child and The Girl in the Fireplace. So yeah. I think Stephen Moffat... I think Russell T. Davis probably thought, oh, I can trust him. Mm -hmm. But I guess also in the back of his mind, it must have been nagging, you know, this is the Dr. Light episode. You've got to tread very carefully with these. What if uh, Stephen comes back with something that's really not treading very carefully at mm. all? And, of course, Stephen Moffat, absolutely desperate. He's just thrown in a two-part Dalek story. He's offered to write a single episode. He's not really got much idea of what to do. And not only that, he's offered to write the Dr. Light episode. So what does he do? He, uh, I was hoping you were going to answer well, me there, Mark. I, I, well, sorry, I thought I was going to be a rhetorical question. I think it's an absolute genius idea to have the DVD extras as the the payoff, as the, the way of having the Doctor in there. I was talking about where he gets the story from, Mark. Oh, it comes from uh, one of the um, the annual stories, doesn't it? Yes. He's offered to do something. He's not got much time left to do it in. And not only has he offered to do something, he's really given himself a hard time about what it is he's going to do. So what does he do? He just steals the story from somewhere else. He says, okay. Well, he's stealing from himself, so it's not. Yeah, absolutely he stealing is. Stealing per se. But what he's doing is, he's not gone out and thought up an idea. No. He's no. gone out and nicked an idea that he already thought up earlier. In fact, he nicks two ideas, doesn't he? Because the Weeping Angels mm -hmm. were originally going to be... Were the... they going to be in Silence in the Library? 
Yeah, they were going to yeah. be the monster in Silent. Can you imagine that, actually? Huge floating library with the Weeping Angels in. That if I had to do the library a lot more like an old-fashioned library than like a brand new one, wouldn't mm-hmm. they? That could have been a really interesting different twist on that story. We'll never know. No, so back to Blink. So <laughs> does it work? Of course. And what's quite interesting about it is the way... If you're going to do a Dr. Light story, mm. you kind of have to tread very carefully about how you get the Doctor into the story. Mm. And what happens in um, Love and Monsters, of course, like mm. I just said, is that they thread the idea of the Doctor into the story yeah. by having people who are interested in mm-hmm. the Doctor. So in Blink you've got a situation whereby Stephen Moffat needs to thread Doctor Who into the story so that yeah. the audience watching it at home still realise they're watching Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like you said, the DVD extras. And that's such a genius idea as well. Well, the thing about it is, it's really simple. Yeah, it is. Well, it's like many of the of best hours, ideas, it's simple. It, yeah, it's a couple of hours filming for David Tennant. Yeah. But you can thread them throughout the entire episode by just showing clips from them. And it doesn't feel like a cheat. No. When you're watching it back, you just think, oh, this is amazing. And then, of course, when you get the conversation at the end. Yeah. That it's, yeah, the final Where you get to see both brilliant. sides of it. So that actually, all these things that you've been watching all the mm. way through, none of which seem to have made any sense. They're just kind of these random little clips. Yeah, it's all there for a reason. It's like in Girl in the Fireplace, mm. where the clockwork robots are looking for Madame de Pompadour, age 37. Mm -hmm. And not only do you not know why they're looking for Madame de Pompadour, you don't know why they're looking for her age 37. And you kind of assume it's going to be one of those random things that's never Mm -hmm. properly explained. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, when it is, that's one of those gee whiz moments, right? Yeah, yeah. And Blink, when you get the conversation at the end, Mm -hmm. it's exactly the same trick. He's, He's written the conversation first, and then threaded it backwards it through it. the episode yeah. so that when it gets to the end of it, it's like, oh, right, of mm-hmm. course. And you're not really expecting that. I think watching that, I wasn't really expecting it to be explained. I know so many people who recommend it as a, a introductory story to people who are interested in watching Doctor Who if I haven't seen an episode. And on paper, you think, oh, my God, that's mad having a Doctor Light episode. But... I can totally see where they're coming from. You know, it gives you a real flavour of what Doctor Who is about, even if he's not really in it that much. And actually, um, well, it doesn't hurt. You've got an amazing guest cast as well. No, but going back to the West Wing that I mentioned earlier, mm. have you seen the West Wing? Yes, you have, haven't you? Yeah. Mm. And you know, the first episode doesn't have Martin Sheen in it at mm-hmm. all. Not until the last few seconds, mm-hmm. and you don't, and you don't even notice. You're watching this hugely witty, hugely involving political drama, mm-hmm. and you don't even notice that the main character's not in it till yeah. he turns up right at the very end. And blinks the same. It's almost like if you are going to use it as an introductory episode, mm. it's not got too much Doctor in it, mm-hmm. because normally, if you give somebody an episode in the middle of a run. Yeah, they're, thinking, what the hell's going on here? But they're also, but they're also at an immediate distance from it because mm. the Doctor and his companion are already engaged in a relationship. Yeah, 
Whereas in Blink... Yeah, you don't feel like you're having to know about all the backstory no. to be able to enjoy it. It's like when you go to a pub with two mates, mm-hmm. both of whom you've known each other for ages, but only one of which you know. Mm. And whatever conversation they're having is also always going to exclude you slightly yeah. because you only have a relationship with one of them rather than with both of them. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Blink, it feels like you've all gone to the pub yeah. together Mm-hmm. to meet for the first time. Do you know what I mean? It's all about the pub for you, JR, isn't it? It's all about an introduction. <laughs> yeah. Now, the following year, Russell T. Davies obviously thought to himself, OK, we did the story where the Doctor Who fans, mm-hmm. and then we did the story where the Doctor's kind of... Where it's a story that doesn't involve the Doctor, but that the Doctor's still involved in, kind of. Yeah. But they're both Doctor and Companion light. So the following year, Russell T. Davis tries something different. And actually, on the only two occasions where Stephen Moffat has had to do Doctor Light, he's followed the template set here, Mm. which I think is the less obvious one. Because it's very apparent watching Love and Monsters, and it's very apparent watching Blink, that the regulars weren't available to be there. But by splitting it up, so that you get a doctor story and a companion story, mm-hmm. you, <clears throat> you don't end up with an episode with the regulars missing. You got, and this goes back to what I was saying about what we were saying about the black and white ones, where somebody'd yeah. be missing for a week, but the rest of the cast were there to take up the slack. Yeah, and as so I say, got... going off on a tangent, I'm I'm slightly gutted that Carrie Mulligan had such a great Hollywood career because I was kind of hoping she might come back for more. Yeah, I know. But that's all right. You and I can see her any time because she lives only uh, about well, three it, yeah. miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Quite often see her around town shopping. Mm. I don't. I don't. I made that up. I've never <laughs> seen her. I've never seen her at all. She's gorgeous. <clears throat> right. So in series four, we get Midnight, in which we have only the Doctor yeah. and a very small cameo from the companion and turn left in yeah. which we have only opposite. Donna and a very small cameo from David Tennant. It's probably the most obvious sort of double banked setup, I suppose. It is. But like I say, in each of those episodes, you have somebody from the main cast. Mm-hmm. So the audience is not going. To... It's like one of those things. If the audience turned over from ITV mm-hmm. 10 minutes into blink, they might wonder if they were actually watching Doctor Who at all. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't get that in either Midnight or Turn Left. Now, the interesting thing is, wow, perhaps the controversial thing I'm going to say here is, I don't think Turn Left works. And I know a lot of people love Turn Left. And I think it's got some great moments Mm -hmm. and some great ideas. But I don't think it works at all. It's effectively sliding doors, isn't it? Yeah, but it's sliding doors as written by somebody who didn't get sliding doors. Mm. thing about Turn Left is this beetle climbs up on Donna's back and from that point forwards, everything we see is only in her head. Mm-hmm. So... You know, this entire time, she's sitting in this room with this beetle on her back. Yeah. Imagining 
the universe without the Doctor, not experiencing an actual universe without the Doctor. Well, it's a and bit then... like storytelling 101 when you're at primary school and you, you get told off for writing a story and ending it with, and they woke up and it was all a dream. Oh, yeah, but I'm saying more than that. I'm mm. saying, I'm saying, <clears throat> and this is Russell T. Davis, perhaps on his fourth series, mm. when he'd done so much writing and so much rewriting. And I don't think, I think by this time he was losing the facility to self-edit. Mm. But he writes this story which, as I was just saying, doesn't take place in an actual alternative universe, but on the inside of somebody's head, yeah. in their imagination, imagining an alternative universe. Mm -hmm. And then he writes the last 15 minutes of the story where Rose turns up, yeah. and Unit turns up, and they go through this whole thing as if it's an actual alternative universe <laughs> before she then wakes up with the bug still on her back. Yeah, It's like... It's like he wrote... Make your half... mind up. What, yeah. what story are you telling? Yeah. Which one is it? Is it the mm. dream or is it the parallel universe? Mm. It can't be both. And that, I think, not only is that confusing, and I think that's one of those things that people who like that episode tend to overlook, but I can't overlook that. I think Turn Left would have been very successful if he had done one thing or the, or other. the other. Yeah, But by... By either trying to do both and get the best of both worlds, mm. or by not realizing that you weren't doing both and accidentally, yeah. <clears throat> I think he really makes a mess of it. I take it you read the writer's tale, have <clears throat> you? Russell T. Davis's diary yeah. of his time? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the hours he spent writing, you know, at three, four o'clock in the morning, mm. night after night after night, it's probably not surprising that little things slip through that perhaps in hindsight didn't well, work. Well, quite. And I wonder if, given that his co-executive producers, <clears throat> or, or one of which was Julie Gardner, mm -hmm. and Julie Gardner, you know, for all her brilliant qualities, she's not like a sci-fi nut. Mm. I, she she liked doing Doctor Who for the character drama, yeah. not for the science fiction. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't... Th and she would be, I would imagine, the only person who would have the wherewithal yeah to be able to turn around to ross and t dave and say hey uh, you got that wrong you're quite sure what you're doing there yeah. yeah and i don't think she'd get that he'd done that so to me hmm. turn left while it has a brilliant concept some very nice ideas going through it and you know if you skip over the fact that he's not just missed the ones set in present day Earth, but would have missed the ones where they'd travelled into the past as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have to sort of overlook those. Really nice concept, really nice ideas, and absolutely undone I by the like ending. I feel like we're going back to the uh, suspending disbelief episode. Yeah, possibly. I find Turn Left... I, I love the first sort of 35 minutes, and I find the last 10 minutes takes me mm. right out of it. It's one of those things as well, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's like, oh, God. Mm. Yeah, and then you go back and it kind of spoils the first 30 minutes yeah. or so. Yeah, but then there's Midnight, and Midnight's completely the opposite. Midnight, turn left, is Russell T. Davis trying to be clever, mm. trying to say, because in in the first two uh, instances of him doing Dr. Light, he does, right, 
you have to take the Doctor out of the story, mm-hmm. but fill the universe with the Doctor, and particularly in Love and Monsters, which is the one he wrote, and in turn left. I mean, the one great thing about that concept is that's what he literally does. Yeah, He takes the, the Doctor out of the mm-hmm. universe and makes that universe about the absence of the Doctor. Yeah. So it's almost like he's breaking the fourth wall. It's almost like, like in Love and Monsters, where mm-hmm. I said it's like he's... He's like he's breaking the fourth wall there because it's like he's written the conversation that you have down the pub about Doctor Who and then put it on screen as Doctor Who. In turn left, it's like he's breaking the fourth wall by saying to the audience, okay, here's the Doctor Light episode. This is what would happen if the Doctor was taken out of the story altogether. But brilliant concept, not very brilliantly executed. Mm. Midnight, complete opposite. Instead of making Midnight a sort of metatextual episode about Doctor Who, which is what those two Doctor Light episodes were, he just writes a story that doesn't happen to have the companion in it. And not only that, he makes the fact that the companion's not there one of the key elements in how the story works, because there's nobody there. It's just pared down, isn't it? Mm. But there's nobody in the story... Mm. to corroborate the Doctor, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. There's nobody there to back him up, and that becomes the cornerstone Mm. of how the drama works in that story. Yeah. But there's nothing metatextual about it at all. No, it's it's very much a straightforward nuts nuts and bolts story, really. Yeah, it's like an old... It's like Blink is Mm. very deliberately based on the kind of story you'd get in an old Doctor Who annual. Yeah. But Midnight is a story that you'd get in an old Doctor Who annual, perhaps. Mm. Actually, it feels, to me, more like an astounding stories plot. Something like that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah. And that is... And it really works. Yeah. You know... Again, I mean, I mentioned before in Blink, you had that tremendous guest cast, and I think they're very lucky with the people they got in for this as well. Completely. And then... We go forward two years Mm. and we get Stephen Moffat. And I don't think, given his experience with Blink, because I suspect that even though Blink has become, you know, one of these fated as an all-time classic stories, I suspect that the experience of writing it perhaps wasn't such a happy one. Mm -hmm. Because Stephen Moffat... Maybe the experience of having written it and having successfully got to the end might be one of those sort of pat yourself on the back that you got away with it moments. Mm -hmm. But I suspect the experience of actually writing it might not have been terribly rewarding. So then you get to Stephen Moffat and he finds himself in a situation where Russell T. Davis was, where you've got to film 14 episodes in the time that really you've only got for 13 yeah so he has double bang as well so what he does is i think he's a, a bit one... more sorry to cut you off i think it's a bit more fortunate in as much as didn't they have quite a lot of time to plan the series because they were doing that whilst um, yeah the other team were were finishing up on series four and also what he does is rather than take on this responsibility himself mm. he just turns around to his mate gareth roberts and says right gareth you write me a doc you know, uh, no, actually, Gareth Roberts writes the companion light story, doesn't he? Yes. Which is the lodger. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I've put these in columns here, and I've got them all in the wrong columns. <laughs> How ridiculous. Oh, JR. Yes. In fact, was there a Doctor Light story in... Oh, blimey. Series 5. I'm trying to conjure up what the episodes in Series 5 were. No, Matt Smith's in it throughout, isn't he? Pretty much. In fact, actually, thinking about it, Series 5 was just a 13-episode run, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. So I've just made a total tit of myself for the last five minutes, haven't no, I? No. But no, that. that's weird then. Why does he feel the need to do a companion light story in Series mm. 5? There must be some sort of logistical reason for it. And yeah, he does. No, it's the following year where he does the Doctor Light story. Yeah. Which is the girl who waited. Mm -hmm. No, so in that case, it's even weirder that twice he gives Gareth Roberts the responsibility of doing a companion light story. Mm. And in fact, right next to the lodger, or not quite right next to it, very close indeed to it, you've got The Hungry Earth. Yeah. Which... Uh, not both episodes, just the first episode is also a companion light episode because mm. Amy gets sucked into the ground 10 minutes yeah. in and basically doesn't reappear till the following week. I'm sure we're missing an obvious trick here and uh, everyone listening at home will be go shouting at the speakers, oh, you idiots, it's obvious, it's because of this. Oh, I really should have uh, thought about this more before <laughs> we sat down and started recording. That's very unlike you, JR. Yeah, so you know what I'm going to do? Go on. Uh, very quickly move on. <laughs> <laughs> I love The Lodger. I think it's a great, great story. And although it's technically companion light, yes. I think he does a great job of introducing uh, the James Corden character into it. And I think the rapport they have, which is you know, part of that, is down to the performances of Matt Smith and James Corden. I think it's brilliant. It's one of those, it's comfort watching. I can dig that one out. And just sit down and watch it, and it's just makes and you I feel good. And I think closing time's even better. Yeah, I do. I think the lodger is like a almost a dry run, and closing time is more like a consolidation. Mm -hmm. I think closing time works even better. But all the things I was just saying about um. <laughs> the lodger when I was when I had it mistakenly in my head as Doctor Light, <laughs> how on earth that happened I do not know. But same thing about the girl who waited, mm -hmm. because the girl who waited that's the series where they're doing thirteen, fourteen episodes yeah. in the space of thirteen, and that's the story where they have to do the Doctor Light. Mm -hmm. And yes, he gives that story away. He doesn't do it himself. He just says he just says to somebody else. Come in, write me a story. You can only have the Doctor for one day's worth of filming. So only give him scenes that can be all be filmed in the same day. And Tom McRae comes in and absolutely belts it out of the park. He really shows his writing chops, doesn't he? <coughs> well, the most amazing thing about The Girl Who Waited is not that he manages to do a story that doesn't have much of the Doctor in it. Mm -hmm. uh, like Blink where there are scenes threaded throughout so the Doctor's always a presence. Yeah. But those scenes that are threaded throughout where the Doctor's a presence are very, very clearly, you know, put in. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, what's the expression I'm looking for? You know what I mean. They're not part of the ongoing story in the present. They're video clips coming in from somewhere yeah. else. Whereas in The Girl Who Waited... You don't even notice that Matt Smith's only got 
you know, one day's worth of recording on that episode yeah. because he's more or less in it throughout the episode. Pretty soon, really, isn't it? He's in it in person as well, rather than on a video clip. Is a lot you of that know. down to the direction as well, or both? Or purely down to the, the oh writing? no no the writing and the direction, mm. but primarily the writing because mm. Tom McRae had to work that out. He had, it's like if you go back to the black and white ones where I said those writers working back then had to be very much aware of everything that they would need to involve for the studio recording. And the example I gave was not having the same actor at the end of one scene and at the start of the next. Yeah. Well, Tom McRae, who can only be used to writing television that doesn't do this is suddenly given you know 60 blank pages and told right whatever you do with matt smith it all needs to be able to be filmed in one day yeah. basically and he sits down and he does it and that is an astonishing piece of writing because that can't be something he's learned that's not the kind of thing that you learn in writer's school do you know what i mean yeah. not these days 50 years ago yes but these days, that is something that he just had to sit down and do. And brilliantly. I, mean, I know this was because he, am I right in saying he wrote the, the two-parter for Series 2, the, the Cyberman yes. two-parter? But he's quite an experienced writer because he's, he's done a couple well, of series of his own sitcom, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and not only that, he's done, I think he did a Lewis and mm. he's done Agatha Christie things as well. Yeah. Which is proper, I was going to say proper grown-up telly, but what I mean... You know, what I mean by that is that's big budget telly. Yeah. That's, you know, you ha you don't get the opportunity to not do a good job of something like that. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have you doing that no, if you weren't quite. capable and you wouldn't be able to get away with not doing a good job on it. So obvious. So between Rise of the Cybermen, which mm -hmm. probably, again, was fairly heavily rewritten by Rosalind T. Davis anyway, yeah. and The Girl Who Waited, Tom McRae has you know, grown and developed as a writer mm. like nothing you've ever seen. I'd like to see him come back again, actually. I think he's a yeah. quite a talented writer. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I I think he did an astonishing job with The Girl Who Waited. And like I say, I think one of the most astonishing things about it is the constrictors around what he was working with. Mm. And of course, to be able to then... And this is kind of funny or ironic in a kind of a way mm. he writes the doctor light episode so instead he puts the companion in it twice yeah you know <laughs> yes yeah. i don't know whether that's some kind of an in joke <laughs> or something maybe subconsciously in his head i don't know but there she goes off down two different time streams and she's in it twice very 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 funny uh, it's got to be said in as and much also, as i before prefer... i go though go on, come back go to it Rory's in it twice as well, of course, and that's yeah. even more of a joke because yeah. that very much is a joke. Go on then, sorry. What I was going to say, um, although I prefer Series 5 over Series 6, as we've discussed many times, um, I think Amy works better as a companion as time goes on. So by the time they actually get to write her out, she's actually the companion I would have liked her to be. But this is kind of mm. like the the beginning of her really blossoming, in my opinion, as a companion. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, I get the impression she was learning during series five, mm. and she had learned during series six. Yeah, mm. I think she was trying a bit too hard at first, 
and I think she relaxed and settled in during series six. And the girl who waited is the story where she gets to properly show off. Rather than showing off, she's just actually yeah. doing a really good job. Oh, it must be a dream part for a, an actor if you get handed that. And you think, wow, I've really got something to get my teeth into. Now, do you want to know the really ironic thing? Go on. Love and Monsters, Blink, Turn Left, The Girl Who Waited. Mm. They are all Dr. Light stories and they are all either the best or at least among the best mm. stories of their respective series. There is a certain irony there. That is ironic, isn't it? Mm. I found it... Yeah. Right. I don't know. There's only the two of us. Do we have anything more to say on this? On that story? Uh, or on, on the, the subject? On the subject. <laughs> Apart from it forces you to up your game. Yeah. And so far, everybody who's had to do it has upped their game. And the results are plain to see, quite frankly. I think it shows the, the flexibility within the format of the programme. Um, and it gives writers an opportunity to do something a little bit different that you may not necessarily be able to get away with if it was just a, a bog-standard Doc 2 story. You're right. And not, and it gets them. it gives them not just a chance to do something a little bit different, but also to flex themselves as mm. well. Yeah. It's... It's almost like an advertisement for the writer, you know, uh, this sounds a bit disingenuous, but it's almost like the writer yeah. saying to the audience, Look what I and can I can do not Doctor Who as well, mm. and here I am doing it as Doctor Who, Yeah, in a kind of a way. I've got Which to say, after... No, sorry. No, go on, no. I'm... I was going to say, after... Uh, I mean, Love of Monsters got a mixed reception. I think generally within fandom, it's it's relatively well received but i think after blink i think from that point on the dr light episode became very much the the sort of something event. people look forward to yeah the yeah. event of the season it's like oh what's it going to be this year yeah maybe and also for turn left yes and midnight as well of course because they mm. split it that year yeah but i think with the girl who waited I don't think people even knew it was the Doctor Light mm. episode. I think they got away with it that well. And that was, you know, everyone I've spoken to absolutely adores that story. Yeah. Well, all four of them, actually. I know I said I find Turn Left extremely flawed, but mm. most people consider it one of, if not the best of, Series 4. Yeah. Um, I have to do a bit of singing again now, Mark. Oh, Christ on a bike. Go on, then. <clears throat> Okay, I've got an email, and I have been told to start the email as follows. Mm-hmm. Revs up! <laughs> <laughs> I was watching the Hairy Bikers today. I was struck by one of the guys from that. It reminds me of the Rev a bit. Really? Yeah. Are you sure he's not the Hairy Biker? Well, maybe he is. Let us know, Rev. Uh, the Rev says, Hi, Fonzie, Potsy, Ralph, the Malf, and Richie C. What's oh, Ralph dear. the Malf? These are all characters from Happy Days, Days aren't they? Yeah. He says, "I sorry to be late to the party. Did I get? Did I do that right?" Um, was that supposed to be like an Ali G thing? No, I think it's supposed to be like a Fonzie thing. Ah, oh, oh, yeah. Well, I'm assuming, considering he's just made the whole Happy thought, Days reference there, Mark. I thought Fonzie's more like E. 
Okay then. Hey, sorry <laughs> to be late to the party, and forget to send you my faves for season two of Doctor Who. Yeah. They would have to be the Dalek invasion of Earth and the Time Meddler. No. A bit surprised no one else had those ones. Anyway, I noticed as all the excitement built up about your 100th birthday that you peppered in a few hints that the meaning of the J and the R in JR would be revealed in the mm. podcast. How utterly ridiculous. But to be fair, it's done its job, much like the name of the Doctor. What do you think his name will be then? People would ask me. I don't, I reply. It's just a marketing thing, I blankly continue. Why would they do that? They ask with wrinkled brow. So people talk about it. Well, obviously it worked, but let's be honest, we all know that JR is just an abbreviation for Jocta. Oh. <laughs> anyway, you says are the an Rev. <laughs> anyway, says the Grev, to my main gripe, I must say that this bullying of the Diddly Dumb podcast must what? stop. I refer, of course, to you cynically saying that we pinched the idea of an on-the-spot section from you. Mm, Diddly Dumb's... Um, they said that we said it. I think I Did might have said it. You probably did. In fact, you did. <laughs> yeah. You're, but you're always accusing me of stealing it anyway. Well, you did. Diddly Dumb's Horn of Rassilon sections are carefully thought out mini lectures which are cohesive and well-structured thoughts and feelings from the heart on subjects relating to Doctor Who and not just remembering episodes. Ooh. The key being, we know beforehand what we are going to say. Not like your random on the spots which go thus. Okay, Potsy, give me 60 seconds on the robots of death. Oh, er, uh, right, er, uh, robots of death. Well, I like it. Uh, it's got robots and death in it. Er, uh, Tom Baker, of course. Always good. Er, uh, and Leela. Underrated Leela is, or is she? Er, uh, lovely robots. Er, uh, is that 60 seconds? <coughs> I'm not doing that again. <laughs> mm. Quickly swigs water. Rev continues. Well, after our recent Scottish Stories podcast, we've decided to move on from the on the spot as well. Many of our Scottish brothers and sisters felt we were stereotypical. Hence, we've decided to readdress the balance by letting Scottish fans have their say in our new totally original feature, Jock's Box. Wow. <clears throat> Are they well, getting now. Jeff Waddell to uh, contribute to that? <clears throat> in Jock's box? Yeah. Hi, Jeff. Is he Scottish? He is, yeah. Of course he is. Oh, well, there you go. Anyway, Rev finishes up. Well, now, I've conned you into shamelessly plugging the Diddly Dumb podcast, and I'm off to think of other rhymes for Knox that I could potentially stick in a box. Damn it, box. he's so clever. <clears throat> Many happy returns. Reverend Captain Hullo Porro, deceased. A.K.A. Parish Councillor Flakier, A.K.A. The Ballyhard, that's how I like it, A.K.A. Doc Womb, A.K.A. <laughs> A.K.A. I'll Know When It Happens. <clears throat> oh dear. And there's the Rev for you. Thank you, Rev. Yeah, you can see why I saved these to the end of the podcast. Oh now, yeah, go out on a high. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we've got one more from Doc Whom. Ah. <clears throat> diddly to the dumbs or dumb to the diddlies well yeah oh dear Lee, Mark and Simon you must read this email out very quietly so that we won't be overheard I'm taking this opportunity to contact you while Leader Southall has locked himself in the records room oops 
Something must be done to stop Leader Southall's plot to take over the podcasting world by engineering catastrophes and disasters mm. like the Blue Box team's performance in the recent quiz. Hey. <laughs> well, he says, I've finally worked out how we can do it. Purely by chance, I've met a farmer who is Leader Southall's doppelganger. If we can insinuate him into chairing the next Blue Box podcast instead of the real leader, Southall, we may yet return sanity to the world of podcasting. The plan can't fail to mm. work. Is this farmer Mexican by any chance? <laughs> Not only does the doppelganger look like leader, Southall, he can even copy his strange Yorkshire stroke Mexican accent. Mm. <clears throat> I attach a sample of him attempting the accent. Yours conspiratorially, Doc Whom. Uh, at this point... Is this going to be Papa Lazarou from... Uh, <clears throat> yes, he sent me a sample that was just... Hello, Dave! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, predictable as ever. Ah, uh, yes. Well, there you go, that's Doc Whom. Thank you, Doc. Oh, on the subject of the quiz... Hmm... I am going to be missing for a couple of weeks in July. What? I am going to be missing for a couple of weeks in July. Let's call it a holiday. End of July or early August. Is this so, going to be a JR Light period? Yes. So, what I'm planning to do, hopefully, mm. is pre-record a couple of podcasts. Oh, double go bank. Into the... Yes, I'm going to double bank, hopefully. And that's not a euphemism. Well, it might not be from where you're sitting, but where I'm sitting is very much a euphemism. <clears throat> anyway, I was going to say, that quiz podcast, which was a bit of an experiment, and I was a bit scared about how it might go down. You were scared. Has... Well, yeah, but I didn't have to answer the question. Exactly. Well, apparently it went down really well, and a lot of people have said, please do another one. And you know what I'm like when people ask me to do things? You don't do it. Well, I will do. Oh. And I will save it till, uh, you know, late July or early August when I'm away. Mm. And I believe, I believe, I'm planning, instead of re-challenging Radio Free Scarrow so that they can knock you into a cocked hat once again. What you again, mean is you're sparing us from another thrashing? Well, not necessarily, because um, I'm going to attempt to assemble a round-the-world team of wow, it's like Avengers podcasters. Assemble. <clears throat> Indeed so. I've already arranged for somebody to come from Australia, surprisingly enough, mm. given what we were talking about at the start yeah, of the Yeah, who episode. could that be, I wonder? And I'm intending to find somebody on the other side of the Atlantic. and yeah. I have... Maybe a hairy biker? And I... for on the other side of the Atlantic? No, no, but, you know. Oh, you'd like Maybe the rope want... to be included as well, is that what well, you're saying? Well, you know, if he's around. Well, funnily enough, I was going to ask him. Ah. So, yes, there you go. Well, it, it sounds like a good idea, although I think possibly you might have asked him before you announced it on the podcast, because he might turn around and say no. Uh, no, actually, I haven't. I was literally actually just going to ask him. <laughs> and now you've said it, I'd better actually send him an email before this podcast goes out. <laughs> Tiny whimey. <laughs> uh, apart from that, I th what are we doing next week, Mark? Next well, you're not going to be here, actually. Next week, I shall not be here, which I'm sure will be a relief to everyone listening. But when, so because you're not here, what are we going to be talking about? 
is it children in Doctor Who? Oh, is it children in Doctor Who? I don't know, is it? Are we not doing a John Pertwee series? No, I wanted to be around for that one. I love John Pertwee, me. Okay, in that case, we'll do John Pertwee the week after. So hey. next week, next week probably, we'll be doing children with Ooh. significant roles in Doctor Who. Careful how you word that. <clears throat> no, Mark, that definitely wasn't a euphemism. And the week after that, we'll probably do season nine. The J then. isn't Jimmy, is it? No, it's not. Uh, but as we're doing season nine in two weeks, it'll probably still be around by then. Find our Facebook page, find the thread for season nine, and vote for those five stories yeah, in voting. order of preference. And also vote for your crap monsters as well. Yes, because we'll also be doing crap monsters at some point fairly shortly. Yeah. But don't vote for the Nymon. Why? Because it's awesome. You Everyone like Nymon? Yeah. What's not talking oh. about? Well, in that case, you won't mind talking about it. Exactly. During our Crap Monsters podcast. Oh. Until then, I was JR. I was Mark. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs>